A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There is no difference between me and these streets, save they being streets and I a soul, which perhaps is irrelevant when we consider the essence of things. We read passages in the book of disquiet often and think, well, yes, that's exactly what I think. That's exactly what I feel. Although I would never have been able to say it so eloquently. He says that he's an empty stage with characters moving about on inside him, and it, it's almost like he is the meeting place for this whole ecosystem of imaginary friends. Maybe it was a world he preferred to retreat to. And this is the last sentence that Psoe wrote already at the hospital where he was the day before he died. I know I have woken up and still sleep. My ancient body, exhausted from living, tells me it is still very early. Those were the first published lines of what became the Book of Disquiet by Bernardo Swash, assistant bookkeeper in the city of Lisbon. A posthumous, fragmentary, disorientating and utterly fascinating masterpiece. But Bernardo Swash did not exist. His book was, in fact, written by Portugal's greatest modern poet, as Anthony Burgess called him, Fernando Pessoa, who was born in Lisbon in 1888, died there in 1935, and hardly left the city as an adult. Pessoa was a pioneer of modernism in Portugal, but the vast bulk of his literary output was unpublished when he died. The Book of Disquiet, written in prose, is perhaps his greatest achievement. Philip Pullman, calls it the very book to read when you wake at 3am and can't get back to sleep, full of mysteries, misgivings, fears and dreams and wonderment. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'm going to try to piece together some of the fragments of Pessoa's fractured Book of Disquiet, threading an anxious and confused way through the ancient streets of Lisbon. In the book, Pessoa writes that perhaps my greatest ambition is really no more than to keep sitting at this table in this café. In some ways, he achieved this ambition because today, in downtown Lisbon, outside the Café Abrasileira, 
formerly one of Pessoa's favourite haunts, there's a bronze statue of him sitting permanently at his table, legs crossed, watching the world go by. And it's in this cafe that I'm going to meet our guest for today's episode. Hello, lovely to meet you. Hi, this is Andrea. So we're sitting outside the cafe now, right next to the statue of Pessoa. It's a perfect place to start the podcast today. And I'm delighted to welcome our guest for today's episode, Richard Zenith. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Henry. <laughs> Glad to be here. Richard Zenith is an acclaimed translator, biographer, and literary critic. He was the first person to translate a complete edition of the Book of Disquiet into English in 1991, and he followed that up with an expanded Portuguese edition in 1998 and a new revised English translation in 2001. He has also translated Pessoa's poetry in two volumes, Fernando Pessoa and Company, which won the Penn Award for Poetry and Translation, and A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe, published by Penguin Classics. And in 2021, he published a definitive and brilliant biography of Pessoa. In 2012, he was awarded the Pessoa Prize, the most prestigious cultural prize in Portugal. So, Richard, I can't think of anyone better to be discussing Pessoa with us today. Thank you for joining us. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I guess as a first question, I'd love to ask, how did you first come across Pessoa? And how is it, why is it that he's become such an important figure in your life? Well, I first read some of Pessoa, got to know Pessoa thanks to a friend when I was living in Chicago in the United States. I was about 22 years old, I think. She had a Portuguese boyfriend, and the boyfriend passed on to her some photocopies of poems by two of Pessoa's heteronyms, that is, these uh, other authors that he invented. He gave them names and biographies. So one of those heteronyms was Alberto Caero, and another was Álvaro de Campos. Well, these uh, photocopies were in Portuguese. I knew Spanish, as my friend did too. But with the Spanish, we could pretty much figure out what the poems meant. We could follow along pretty well. And we were absolutely fascinated by these poems. They were like nothing we'd ever read before. Uh, So I was immediately taken in. Uh, And at that time, there were some translations of of Pessoa already into English, but he wasn't at all well known. I sought out the translations that I could find in university libraries and read some, but then that was it. But shortly after that, I went to Brazil a few months later, and I lived in Brazil for three years. That's where I learned Portuguese, and that's where I began to read uh, Fernando Pessoa. Wow. So it's, it's been a lifelong fascination for you this it has and then uh, I began translating actually Brazilian poets into English and and Pessoa only a bit later I came a few years later to Portugal actually to translate troubadour poetry so the very first poetry practically the first writing in ancient Portuguese were these cantigas these troubadour poems and I arrived here in, in Lisbon in 1987 the Book of Disquiet in Portuguese had only been published um, five years earlier in 1982. So I read that book here. Uh, I realized it had not been translated into English. I was fascinated by that book, so I set about translating it. Fantastic. Well, there's so much to discuss today and lots to unpack, even in what you've said already. But let's just... um, Just describe the surroundings where we are. We're we're outside the Café Abrasileira. And it's a beautiful cafe inside, isn't it? Wood-panelled and pretty much unchanged since Pessoa must have been leaning against the bar 100 years ago. 
Yes. Well, this this cafe was actually founded in 1905, which is the same year that Basso returned from South Africa, where he spent nine years of his childhood. So was 17 years old when he came back in 1905. Uh, at that time, the cafe did not have tables inside. It, it served cafe at the counter. You could buy cafe and beans to take home. But three years later, in 1908, they installed tables, and then it, it became a, a favorite cafe of intellectuals in, in Lisbon. There was, a, as in most of Europe, a, a very lively cafe culture at that time. There were many cafes. Then it's more or less identical to what it was in the mid-1920s. It got a bit of a makeover inside with some paintings on the wall on either side, and that's how it's uh, remain to this day. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of bottles and mirrors and glass and, and these paintings, and it's remained that way. Yeah. It's fabulous to see. It's wonderful. Well, in your fantastic biography, by the way, I see that the Portuguese edition has just recently been published. That's yeah. right. It came out in, in May. Right, and we're just uh, we're just up the street from the oldest bookshop in the world, and I saw that um, it's in pride of place on the tables at the front of that shop. It's a wonderful biography. I really enjoyed it, and. At the start, you say that what you attempt to do in it is two things. You attempt to construct a cinematographic life of Pessoa, kind of what he did, um, where he went, but also you attempt to chart his imaginative life. And we're going to attempt to cover both aspects of this extraordinary man today. But I suggest we finish our coffees here and then make the short walk to the square where he was born to carry on our conversation. Okay, sounds good. One day, I don't know which, I found myself in this world, having lived unfeelingly from the time I was evidently born until then. When I asked where I was, everyone misled me, and they contradicted each other. When I asked them to tell me what I should do, they all spoke falsely, and each one said something different. So we've just walked down a flight of steps into a small square, really dominated on one side by the magnificent frontage of the Lisbon Opera House. There's a little fountain in the middle of a square. And on the opposite side from the Opera House, there's a rather dramatic sculpture of a man standing with his hands behind his back and his instead of a head, he has, a, he has an open book. And on the cover, on one side it says Lisboa, on the other side it says Pessoa. And it marks the building where Pessoa was born in 1888. He was born on the, on the fourth floor. It's a very top floor. Yeah, right. Where he was born. With a narrow balcony a running narrow, all the way along exactly. in front of the right. windows. So Richard, when Pessoa was born here, what kind of family was he born into? Pessoa was born into an, uh, an upper middle class family. His father worked for the government, for the Ministry of Justice. And we, that was his job by day. But his real passion was music. Right. He was a, a critic for the newspaper Diari di Notícias, which still exists today, this okay. newspaper. And so at night, he was very busy attending performances of, of concerts, plays, too. But his big passion was the opera. Right. And, With a very and, short commute to get to the opera <laughs> exactly. house. Exactly. Right? So the, the opera house was right opposite. So it's likely that he took little Fernando uh, to the opera at some point or other. We know that Pessoa did go with one of his uncles to the opera, but Pessoa's father 
before he was married, already lived in this apartment with his mother, so his grandmother Dionysia. And then after marrying, so his mother, who was the daughter of uh, a man who was a minister in the government, had a very high position in the government, she was born actually in the Azores on the island called Tercera. But then she came as a little girl to the mainland and grew up in, uh, in Lisbon. But then, of course, when Pessoa was only five years old, his father died. And then his younger brother, Jorge, died soon afterwards. Yes, Pessoa's father had had tuberculosis already when he got married. However, it didn't really affect him too much until the last year or so of, of his life. And he was quite sick and then died exactly one month after Pessoa's fifth birthday, uh, right here in this, in this apartment. Uh, and then Pessoa had one little brother, Jorge, who died six months later, right around what would have been his first birthday. And then Pessoa's mother, the very same month that Jorge died, met the man who would become her second husband, uh, João Miguel Rosa, who was a ship's captain for the Portuguese Navy, but was then here in Portugal getting his ship needed repairs. So he was in Portugal for about a year. Met Pessoa's mother at the beginning of that year, courted her, and, and, and he was actually the, you know, the great love of her life, I think. Now, it was because of his mother's remarriage that the family relocated to South Africa for a time. They lived in Durban, where his stepfather was a consul, Portuguese consul. And in South Africa, Pessoa was exposed to all sorts of aspects of English culture, English language, English literature, English imperialism as well. And in many ways, he became partly anglicized in, in South Definitely. Africa and yeah. began writing poetry in English. A big question to ask, but Richard, can you describe what Pessoa was like as a child? He sounds like quite an unusual child. Yes, Pessoa didn't have playmates his own age. Uh, besides his immediate family, there was uh, a lot of relatives in Lisbon. He had a whole bunch of aunts, cousins, but the cousins were older. So Pessoa, as a child, was quite alone a lot of the time. And according to what he himself wrote, he didn't mind that particularly. He knew how to entertain himself. And the way he entertained himself was with words. He loved words. He learned to read very early. And he had a vivid imagination. <laughs> well, and we'll hear shortly how the ways that that imagination developed. Let's fast forward a little bit. We'll walk round the corner uh, to the square where Pessoa lived a little later in his life. We've just come to a corner, and, and here is the Church of Our Lady of the Martyrs, a big neoclassical facade, marble-fronted. And this, of course, is the church where Pessoa was christened, I believe. That's right. Uh, and <laughs> I love this story, that at the age of 17, he, he wrote an open letter to the prior here, complaining that he'd been christened without his permission. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. I love that. Um, and then, of course, the, the bell of this church... He'd have been able to hear that clearly from his apartment, right? And one of his later poems is called "O Church Bell of My Village," and and it's almost certainly the bell of this church, right? That he's yes, because Pessoa himself uh, says that that poem, which talks about a, a village, but he says that the village was actually the square where he was born, ah, okay. uh, uh, Largo de San Carlos, uh, where we were just now. So he 
transposes all of that. Okay, let's carry on our walk towards yes. the square. So we've walked a short way now into the Lago do Carmo, a beautiful little square. One side of it has got the archaeological museum, and there's a little drinking fountain, well, rather a large ornate drinking fountain in the middle of the square. And in one corner of the square is, um, standing on one of the first floor balconies, is a kind of chicken wire mesh, sort of partly invisible figure of a man wearing this distinctive hat and glasses. And of course, it is Pessoa himself, because on returning from Durban to Lisbon, he lived in various locations, and one of them was in rooms here on this square. So, Richard, what happened when he came back to Lisbon? He, he studied briefly at the university, but, but abandoned his studies yes. relatively quickly. Yes, he, he, he studied at, uh, what would become a part of a, the university for two years, but never sat for any exams, actually, for various reasons. And, and then he got, he got bored with it and, and right. left. He uh, read a lot on his own. Yeah. At, the at the National I, Library. Right. I love that um, his favorite book at the time was the Pickwick Papers by Dickens. Yes, well, actually, the Pickwick Papers, that was his favorite book already in Durban, oh, in right, South Africa, right. where he grew up. And I think one of the reasons it was his favorite book, I suspect it was probably the first adult novel that he read. Interesting. So it opened up for him the whole idea of an alternate universe through, through literature. Got it. But then the story itself, which, you, you know, you have Pickwick and his friends who travel around, and there's no real plot. Uh, but but they have their their adventures and so it's a kind of a, a men's club, right? And and Pessoa really took to that and then became sort of a model for his own way of being social throughout his life because Pessoa never married, but he did have his friends and his cafe friends, and then he had the friends he invented these hutterings. So he had Got his it. own kind of Pickwick club. I love that line in the Book of Disquiet where he says, one of my life's greatest tragedies is to have already read the Pickwick Papers. I can't go back and read them for the exactly. first time. Yeah, <laughs> so I also wrote in uh, the Book of Disquiet and elsewhere that characters from the Pickwick Papers like uh, Wardle, Wardle and others, yeah. uh, Sam Weller, were for him just as real or even more real than, than living people. They, they had this reality for him that was intense. Yes, yeah, so he had this regime of reading, and he began writing. Pessoa began writing. He had been writing already in Durban. Uh -huh. And then when he comes back to Lisbon in 1905 to study, he was still writing in English uh -huh. for three full years because his, his ambition was to become a great English poet. Then in 1908, he begins writing also in Portuguese, and, and then his poetry really takes off in Portuguese because although his English was very, very good, uh, completely fluent, I, I believe he wasn't able to feel in the same way in English as he could in Portuguese. Richard, standing here in this square, it, it strikes me that the, the locations we visited, they're all within the area of Chiado in Lisbon. And That's right. In Pessoa's time, what kind of a district was this? How, what, how would you characterize it? Chiado was the fashionable part of town. It's a bit uh, above the, the traditional downtown part, which was a commercial district with a lot of banks and businesses and so forth. But Chiado was where you had shops where they had French fashions and women would do their shopping. The 
upper middle class women and intellectuals would meet in cafes. You had uh, bookshops like Bertrand, the oldest uh, bookshop apparently in the world. So that was where Perceau was born and where he would spend his his days, you know, his time, and uh, along with along with friends in the cafes. Yeah, this was really the intellectual nerve center of Lisbon. Got Chiado, it. Got it. Know. Now, Pessoa did publish some of his work. In 1912, he published his first essay of literary criticism. In 1913, he published his first piece of creative prose, which was actually a passage of what would become the Book of Disquiet. Yes. And his first poems in 1914, but. It's extraordinary that in his entire lifetime, only one real book was published called Mensagem, Message, just a year before he died in 1934. And really, Pessoa's vast legacy is posthumous, right? He famously left behind this huge trunk of poetry, prose, plays, philosophy, all written on scraps of paper and stuffed into this trunk. Why was it, do you think, that he... He clearly wrote a huge amount, and, and why do you think he didn't publish almost any of it? With publishing, he was ambiguous, and in one way he did want to publish, and publish books, uh, but then at the same time he was reluctant, mm. because, well, I think for various reasons, I mean, if you're an unpublished author, you might be a genius. Right, <laughs> yes. Once you publish, if and, and you you might be found out as not being a genius. Yes. So, there, so some of that might be going on. And then Pessoa was too busy writing to really uh, concern himself with the mechanics of actually, you know, getting getting things into publishable shape and and sending them off to here and there to try to get published. Yes, that's so interesting, isn't it? He, I mean, he writes about, in the book of Disquiet, he writes about writing as a drug that I abhor but keep taking, the addiction I despise but depend on. But he just couldn't stop writing. And, and he, he had lots of sort of plans for publications, for sort of, um, you know, books that he would go on to write and never never did and so on. It's a bit, it sounds a, a bit contradictory because on the one hand, he was always on the move, mm. always intellectually changing, going from one thing to another. Yet at the same time, his outward life he didn't really like the idea of change. So once he returns to Lisbon, he almost never again, well, he leaves the city a few times, not very often, never again leaves the country. So he didn't really like change on the outside. And I think that was to accommodate the the vast amount of travel that he did inwardly in his imagination. Well, why don't we now catch a cab to to the end of Pessoa's life, to the last of his houses in, Mm -hmm. in Lisbon? But maybe on the way we can talk about that internal landscape a little bit more. Sounds good. Richard, while we're catching this cab, we've mentioned a couple of times Pessoa's heteronyms, and I think this is the aspect of his work which is perhaps best known, and maybe this is a good moment to, to talk about it. He wrote a letter in his... 40s, describing this extraordinary day in 1914, March the 8th, 1914, when he was aged 25. He says on that day, I walked over to a high chest of drawers, took a sheet of paper and began to write standing up as I do whenever I can. Now, Richard, what happened in 1914? Who, who emerged out of, out of Pessoa's imagination? Yes, According to what Pessoa writes, <laughs> yes. the heteronym who emerged was Alberto Caero. And 
what he writes about what he called the, the triumphal day of his life is um, a bit mm, poeticized. We know from his manuscripts that he did not write uh, 30-some poems all at once on that right. day. However, we also know from the manuscripts that indeed in about you know a 10-day, 15-day period is when this uh, Alberto Cairo suddenly emerges. And it really was a poetry unlike anything Pessoa had, had so far written. Because Pessoa was a very uh, cerebral poet, yeah. very intellectual, and uh, Alberto Cairo was the antithesis of that. He was supposedly, according to his biography, an unlearned poet, uh, that is, without a lot of formal instruction, and uh, lived in, in the country, was a poet of nature. So he was about seeing everything exactly as it is, without adding anything to it, without intellectualizing, without um, you know, wondering, well, uh, what's behind it, or, or, or the metaphysics, or anything like that. All of that he, re he rejects. It's just seeing everything for exactly what it is. And these, just to, just to clarify, you know, this example of a heteronym, it's very different to a pseudonym, right? This isn't Pessoa, as you say, writing his own poetry under a different name. He's created a whole different literary persona with their, you know, his own style, his own influences, his own biography, and he's writing as that fictional character. Exactly. So he puts himself into a completely different frame of mind. And so the heteronyms, they, uh, according to Pessoa, and their poetry seems to bear this out, feel things that he himself does not feel in his own name. They have ideas, uh, religious ideas, political ideas that he does not necessarily share. And they also have uh, very different writing styles. So who else emerged in, which other heteronyms appeared in that year? So uh, shortly after, a couple of months after Cairo uh, emerges, then there was Alvaro de Campos and Ricardo Reis. They both emerged around the same time, May or June, probably June in 1914, and they're quite different. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that, you know, over his lifetime, Pessoa had dozens of these names that he wrote under, but it's these, these three which emerged in 1914 who became the major heteronyms he That's would right, write under. Yeah. Yeah, and he, in fact, his own name he used as both a sort of genuine author's name, but also as a form of heteronym because sometimes he described Fernando Pessoa as being a protege of Cairo, right? And so but you have a great line in your uh, biography where you say that um, one could say that Portugal's four greatest poets from the 20th century were Fernando Pessoa. Well, that's right, because uh, and you can say that because for each of the heteronyms, of these major heteronyms, each one has at least one or more books or, or possible books. They're prolific. So you, you take the the three of them, plus Pessoa himself, who was also quite prolific, and you, and you have these four wonderful poets. Now, now Alberto Cairo was uh, the master poet. He was the one that they all recognized as the, uh, the most important poet, who was the, the most childlike, you know, the one who rejected intellectualizing, just seeing everything exactly for what it was. So Pessoa himself even said that he was a disciple of Alberto Cairo. Right. He has a line in the Book of Disquiet when he says, uh, I have a world of friends inside me with their own real, individual, imperfect lives. I think elsewhere he says that uh, he's an empty stage with characters moving about on inside him. And it, it's almost like he is the meeting place for this whole kind of ecosystem of imaginary friends. Maybe it was a world he preferred to 
retreat to. I think. Yes, because he was uh, solitary, and he he thought of himself as he, according to what he wrote, as a as a medium actually, for all these other voices that emerge. I think part of it too here that we should keep in mind is that Pessoa was skeptical of the idea of a unified, coherent, steady self. So he uh, realized that the self is, is a, uh, a fiction. That is, we, each of us, we, we construct from when we're very small. We begin constructing a, an identity yes. of who we are, accepting certain feelings in, into our personality and rejecting others. And Pessoa, instead of uh, doing that, he put it all into his writing and, and, and then would invent these characters too. Got it. And, and you make the good point in, the, in your biography that the heteronyms are, are, are paths to self-knowledge for Pessoa. They're his way of, of working out himself and, and how he feels about Yes, because each heteronym was a kind of experiment, too. Uh-huh. To, uh, an experiment right. in And, of course, the, the subtitle of your biography in the UK is An Experimental Life, which yes. uh, suits it perfectly. I constantly create personalities. Each of my dreams, as soon as I start dreaming it, is immediately incarnated in another person, who is then the one dreaming it and not I. To create, I've destroyed myself. I've so externalized myself on the inside that I don't exist there except externally. I'm the empty stage where various actors act out various plays. We've just stepped out of the cab now, and that was a great journey through winding streets and up and down the steep slopes and so on. And we're now standing in a slightly different part of the city, in front of the last house that Fernando Pessoa lived in for the last 15 years of his life. And today, this building is the Casa Fernando Pessoa. It's a museum celebrating his life. It's a library. It's a cultural centre with a programme of events. Okay, well, let's cross the road and head inside. So we've come into the Casa Fernando Pessoa now, and I'm delighted that we've been welcomed in by the director, Clara Ritu, who's been director here since 2014. Clara, thank you so much for welcoming us into this building. Thank you very much. Be very welcome. Uh, We've come straight up to the top floor of the building, and, and Clara, maybe you could walk us through the exhibition you know, I can see some extraordinary things on the walls already. So I'll be delighted to do it. So this is the floor dedicated, let's say, to Pessoa as a writer. And here you find maybe the most famous yes. object of our collection. It is this portrait of Pessoa made by Almada Negreiros in 1954. So already after Pessoa's, uh, Pessoa's death. It's an extraordinary portrait, isn't it? Richard, a, a kind of lots of different shades of red, a modernist style. I think the first thing which strikes you is how big it is. It's a huge square canvas um, with a figure filling the frame, probably twice uh, actual size. He was a shortish man, and it really dominates this space, doesn't it? It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's two meters per two meters. Wow, <laughs> wow. And there's Pessoa sitting at a square table, cigarette in one hand writing paper under the other. I think it does um, capture the whole modernist spirit, the way it's kind of a lot of angles mm. in, in this painting and a lot of red shades, shadows, 
and then this figure there with his glasses and hat and bow tie and, and jacket. But so he always liked to dress up. Right. Even I, I asked his niece, who's still living, Manuela Noguera, she has, she's 96 years old. She wow. was 10 years old when Pessoa died. And she's the only one living with any memory. But she says that even at home, I asked her, uh, he would uh, dress up. You know, at night, he, right. he, would, uh, he wasn't one to loaf around in, right. in, in pajamas. No. Right. <laughs> and it's no surprise that this image is on the front cover of so many editions of Pessoa, because it's such a striking portrait. Yes. Now, I've, there's a book on the table in the portrait. And, um, Clara, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about Pessoa's literary importance during his lifetime? You know, we mentioned that he was a great pioneer of modernism in Portugal, but w what form did that take? He was the main motor of that magazine, the magazine Orfeu, right. which you can see in the... Which is here in the portrait. In the portrait, and uh, it was uh, this... It provoked a big scandal, this magazine, um, released in 1915, and then only two numbers were, right. were released. There was the intention of making a third one that never came to light. But Orfeu was a very important gesture and, and attitude of, of the modernist group of those times. And then later, or more or less ten years later, Pessoa was the director of a magazine which was literary and artistic called Athena. Uh -huh. And there he published two of his heteronyms. So Alvaro de Campos was first published in Orfeu. Okay. And then in 1924 came Ricardo Reis and Alberto Caeiro. Got it. Well, Orfeo was really what introduced literary modernism to, to Portugal. And uh, the writers, they uh, produced poetry of a kind that had, had never been uh, written or, or published before. So the reaction of critics was that the, uh, this was literature from the madhouse. Right. And that's what the newspapers insisted on, that these people you know, should, should be uh, in, in an insane asylum. And so then... The, uh, the magazine sold out immediately. <laughs> of course. And lots of people who, who never read and didn't care about literature bought the magazine. And then when they came out with the second issue of Orfeo, uh, as if to prove the point of the critics, they published poems of somebody who did live in the only insane asylum that was in <laughs> Lisbon at the time. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so we've come down to the first floor now, and these, I think, were the actual rooms that Pessoa would have Yeah, this was in. the apartment where he lived. Uh -huh. the first floor, the right side of the building, the place where Pessoa moved to in 1920. Okay, and I can see on the wall some wonderful array of photographs of him throughout his life, from a young boy in a sailor suit right up to a young man in his distinctive uh, high collar and tie and... And then that famous um, photograph of him having a drink at a, at a bar. And on the floor, rather brilliantly, is marked out the original floor plan of this apartment. So you can see actually how small some of the rooms were. And, and, and here's a single bed with, with a trunk at the end of it. The bedroom where Fernando Pessoa would have slept. And, and really that's a very small room without a window, sort of within the apartment there. Yeah, so it was more or less in the middle of the apartment. Pessoa lived the last 15 years of his life here, but, but where, where did he actually die? 
came a day when he didn't feel well and he went to the hospital. Oh, okay. There's a hospital in Bairro Alto. And there finally he, he died. But we, when he left the apartment, uh, so nobody expected him not to come back. Right. Uh, so it was yeah. a, a surprise for the family. And we reached the last object, the last piece of the exhibition, which is this page, this piece of paper with just this light line written. Uh, so with pen, pencil yes. and you can see a date. It's the 29th of November of 1935. And this sentence in English, in English, I know not what tomorrow will bring. Gosh. And this is the last sentence that Pessoa wrote already at the hospital where he was the day before he died. He died that, on the 30th. That is extraordinary that we're looking at that very piece of paper and that, that sentence. And what a sentence to leave as your final words. <laughs> yes, so here at the Casferna and the Pessoa, they have uh, the very first example of Pessoa's handwriting, that signature of the Chevalier de Pas, his first heteronym when he was five or six years old, and the very last piece of writing, I know not what tomorrow will bring, in the hospital the day before he died. That's incredible. What a wonderful exhibition, Clara, mm -hmm. and thank, thank you so much for, thank you for taking coming. us through it. <laughs> thank you. Now, over half of the Book of Disquiet was written in the last six years of Pessoa's life while he was living here in these rooms. And he died at the age of just 47, and by a strange coincidence, it was exactly 47 years later in 1982 that the Book of Disquiet first was published. So, Richard, let's move on now. Let's, uh, we've covered Pessoa's life. Let's now look in more detail at this Book of Disquiet and go for a walk through the streets of Lisbon. Sure. Let's go. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Every time I contemplate a wide panorama, forgetting the five feet six inches of height and the 135 pounds in which I physically consist, 
I smile a supremely metaphysical smile for those who dream that dreaming is a dream. And I love the truth of the absolutely external with the noble purity of understanding. The Tagus in the background is a blue lake, and the hills of the far shore are a flat in Switzerland. A small ship, a black cargo steamer, departs from Poso du Bispo in the direction of the estuary, which I can't see. May the gods all preserve for me, until my present form ceases, this clear and sunlit view of external reality. We're standing now in, in a really extraordinary location. We're at one of the lookout points in Lisbon, Sao Pedro da Alcantara, which is this incredible panorama. You get this wonderful view. We're at a high point in the city, which, of course, is built on seven hills. And or six or eight, or depending on <laughs> what you call a hill. <laughs> How you count it. <laughs> and we're looking out over the rooftops of Lisbon, down to the river Tagus. And this spot is mentioned several times in the Book of Disquiet, isn't it? He, he talks about um, the high city hills and the, and the motley chaos of heaped-up buildings that the daylight dapples with bright spots and shadows. And I think elsewhere he says that there are no flowers for me like the variegated colouring of Lisbon on a sunny day. Yes, Lisbon really is a special city because it is built on hills, so you get a lot of geographical relief and it's not you know, all monotonous at one level. And then Pessoa loved to capture in words what the city looked like, what with the buildings, with their different colours on the sides of the hills and so forth. True, there's so many moments in the Book of Disquiet which describe the colours of the sky or, or the moment just after a rainstorm. And right, and he talks about all the, the different gradations of colour. Yes. And, you know, it's a, a blue-green fading into I don't know what, and, you know, things like that. They're it is exactly like an artist's palette. Yeah. But, look, we've been, we've been talking around the Book of Disquiet uh, in our conversation so far. And I, I wonder if now is the moment to face it head on, because this is not a book like other books, is it? <laughs> Richard, how, when you're describing it to someone who hasn't heard of it before, how do you describe this book to them? The Book of Disquiet is in one sense uh, a non-book, um, a book they kept trying to be and never managed to be, uh, because it kept going in different directions. But so it started with just a title. In fact, we know exactly when the germ of the book was born. It was in, the, in January of 1913. So next to a poem in the margin wrote the title, Desasosego, which is disquiet. Which could, you could also translate that as restlessness, unsettledness. So he began there. He began writing passages, but he had no idea where, where the book was going. And then he wrote on various topics and in various styles, uh, always looking to find the way for his book, which he never really did find. So he ended up producing hundreds, you know, close to 500 different passages throughout his life. But he never had even so much as a notebook dedicated to the Book of Disquiet. He would write these passages while he was sitting in a cafe or at home in his, one of his rented rooms. Then, towards the end of his life, he did put together in an envelope uh, a couple hundred of these passages that belonged to the Book of Disquiet, but there were several other hundred that he didn't put in the envelope. Some were labeled uh, B of D, Book of Disquiet, others were not labeled, and so this explains why it took so many years for scholars to you know, find the material and put it in some kind of order and publish what we call the Book of Disquiet in 1982. But 
so having said that the book is in a way a, a non-book, at the same time it's you know uh, hundreds of books, it's an infinite number of books, because <laughs> since it doesn't have a, a fixed order, each reader can make their own version. There are many, right. and, and, and each editor uh, has made a different version. And, and even the translators who will you know, choose to publish certain passages and leave other passages out. So there are many, many different versions of the Book of Disquiet. You, you have a great line in your introduction to your translation where you say, um, every editor of this book should, and I hereby do, one, apologize for tampering with the original non-order, two, emphasize that the order presented can claim no special validity, and three, recommend that readers invent their own order, or better yet, read the work's many parts in absolutely random order. And Richard, I have to tell you, that's actually how I read the book in preparation for today's conversation. I, I put the numbers from 1 to 481 in a completely random order. Oh, you then, chose the numbers first. I randomized the numbers right. and then read okay. the book in okay. that way. That's fascinating. And it was... It was it was an exciting experience actually because it made me think no one no one has read this book in the way that I am reading it now, and also we we know that Pessoa was interested in astrological charts in in the role of fate in our lives and there was a little thrill every time that you know there was a chance pairing of passages which spoke to each other in some way and I exactly. thought exactly yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a you know, that maybe that connection hasn't been made before and Pessoa would have approved. So thank you for that recommendation. So I really you yourself it. invented yet another, another version, version of the Book of Disquiet, <laughs> which is that particular order of, uh, of numbered passages. Right. You make the good point that if Pessoa had, had prepared his Book of Disquiet for publication himself, you say it would have been a smooth, polished book with perhaps half as many pages and perhaps half as much genius. Indeed, because <laughs> I think one of the fascinating things about the book is its unfinished quality. It is the fact that it, everybody can read it in their own way, and a lot of the fragmentary, unfinished passages, they ask for the reader's uh, collaboration to kind of imagine. And so sometimes in those uh, fragmentary bits, we can kind of see where Pessoa wanted to go. We can imagine what he was reaching for. So we can see that, that genius and those glories that he couldn't quite get into words and that maybe nobody can get into words, but that he envisioned. Well, let's walk down now into this beautiful vista that we're looking at in front of us and head down towards downtown Lisbon where the book is set. Okay, let's go. Brilliant. This is the Rua Augusto, which is kind of slices right straight through the middle of this part of town known as the Baixa, the old commercial district. There used to be traffic here, vehicles going through. Now they've made it into a pedestrian walkway, the whole, the whole street. It's a spectacular vista, isn't it? Down yes, to the river and the statue. it has the, the arch statue. there and then the statue and then the river beyond. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. And actually here we've cut over. Now this is the mm. Plaza de Figuera, another important square. And Pessoa's time, the central market for food was, was here at this oh, square. Okay. Yeah. And we're passing lots of beautiful little shops, confectionery shops. Yes, cafes, shops. pastry shops. We just passed Rua de Prata which was one of the streets where Pessoa uh, worked at several offices. 
And here we're approaching, I can see the little stone plaque marking the Rua dos Douradorish, which means, I think, the, the road of the guilders, of the gold workers. That's right, yeah. yeah. So let's step into this shady, rather quiet street compared to the streets that we've been walking through. Well, that's the amazing thing, is that this street, in all of the streets of this area, is the one that is retained more of, of how it used to be. It's still rather quiet, not too much traffic. You can see these buildings with t- tiled fronts. That's right. They have uh, the ceramic tile facades. Uh, those ceramic tiles are known as azulejos. And these beautiful old-fashioned street lamps yes. sticking out of the sides. Exactly. Now, this is the street where the fictional character, Bernardo Suarez, eats, lives, and works. That's right. <laughs> all on this one street. Yeah. So let's, let's pause on this corner. Now, Richard, I believe this used to be the site. In fact, look, here's a, here's a sign saying Antica Casa Pessoa. Yes. This used to be a restaurant called the Restaurant Pessoa. No yes. connection. No with, connection. Um, it, was a, it was a coincidence. However, this uh, restaurant is mentioned by Pessoa in his diaries and, uh, and notes. So Pessoa used to frequent this restaurant. And in fact, this seems to be the restaurant mentioned in an introduction or preface that Pessoa wrote for the Book of Disquiet, where he describes Fernando Pessoa meeting the narrator of the Book of Disquiet. So in that passage, Pessoa talks about certain eating houses where on the ground level there's a bar and then you go upstairs if you want to have a meal. And this restaurant is exactly like that, or right. was. And unfortunately, it closed rather recently, about five years oh, ago. Really? Yeah. But the waiters, they claimed there was a certain table upstairs where Priscilla <laughs> really? actually uh, sat at. Wow. And uh, whether, you know, who knows if they made that up, or, but perhaps not. I can imagine that, yeah. you know, waiters maybe, maybe passed, story passed it down passed and down. passed down the story. Uh, so this seems to have been really the place where... Did you ever eat at that table? I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> It, it strikes me that, you know, choosing a street to set this book, you know, maybe it was simply because of the restaurant which shared his name and which he liked visiting, but it strikes me as a good street because it's parallel with several other streets which are much, have a much bigger character and are much, sort of, are much busier even today. And this one has quite a private, almost a backstreet feel to it, doesn't it? It's, yes, uh, it, 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 it seems like it could belong to... a. You know, not a small, small town, but certainly a, not a capital city. Yeah. It's Seems got a, a bit provincial. It's, it's sort of surprisingly quiet when you step out of the thoroughfare of right. the Rua de Prata, for instance. Now, right time. opposite this restaurant, the restaurant Pessoa, uh, now it's a, a shop that's all wines. Now, I remember many years ago, I, I arrived here in uh, 1987. And at that time, this was like an old-style grocery, but it had... Uh, I had a good section of wines and port wine. And I remember in the Book of Disquiet, there's a mention of um, uh, Bernardo Suarez sees some uh, bottles of port gleaming in the shop, you know, mm. across the street. So I don't know, maybe Pessoa had that shop in mind. This very shop, how amazing. So we don't know the exact location of the room that 
Suarez is supposed to be renting. We know it's on the fourth floor and we know it doesn't have a balcony. Right. So, in fact, we can look up at this fourth floor up here and imagine Bernardo Suarez late in the evening writing or maybe leaning on that windowsill. There's a moment where he throws a matchbox down into the street from that windowsill. There's another moment where he leans on the windowsill and looks out and says, um, even from this fourth floor room that looks out over the city, it's possible to contemplate infinity. An infinity with warehouses down below, it's true, but with the stars up above. And so let's, um, let's carry on walking down the street and talk about the warehouse where, where Suarez works. Okay. I left my rented room with a great goal in mind, which was simply to get to the office on time. I walked down the street without a care, full of certainty, because the office I work at and the people who work with me are, after all, certainties. It's no wonder that I felt free, without knowing from what. In the baskets along the pavement of the Rua de Prata, the bananas for sale were tremendously yellow in the sunlight. So again, we don't have a precise location for the, for the fabric warehouse where Bernardo Suarez works, but somewhere else on the street. Let's imagine it's, it's here where we've stopped. Um, he works for a company called Vasquez and Company. That's right. Um, he's an assistant bookkeeper, which is essentially a ex- highly menial job. I mean, it's essentially entering figures into big ledgers, keeping exactly. tracks of the, of the company inventories and and finances and so on and we over the course of these 500 fragments we piece together some of the characters who work in this office there's Senor Vasquez himself there's Moreira Moreira, am I pronouncing that right? Yes Moreira. His his sort of immediate boss the head bookkeeper Vieira sales representative Antonio an office boy and do you remember that there's a just one moment I remember really enjoying where he's looking down at the white blotting paper underneath his ledger and somehow that blotting paper seems to be a kind of a, a micro version of the whole of the book of Disquiet because he says um, I examined the crossed out scribbles of concentration and distraction there are various instances of my signature but upside down and turned around a few numbers here and there wherever a few confused sketches sketched by my absent-mindedness and it's almost like a sort of fragmented, fractured, imperfect work that in, he's created in, on that single sheet of blotting paper. Indeed. And it's also true that that description might be somewhat literal. I say that because Pessoa in his manuscripts, he often scribbled signatures, sometimes his own or of dozens and dozens of heteronyms or of names that never got to be heteronyms. And he, he liked to sometimes doodle with figures too. Uh, so, so there are sheets uh, in his archive that have dozens of signatures on the, in different directions on the same sheet. So it might, might actually be a somewhat literal description right. of Pessoa's writing. That's fantastic. I should say too that the, uh, the whole office scene and even the people that work in the office was modeled after a, a real office where Pessoa worked. Oh in the uh, street parallel to this one, in the Rua de Prata. He worked for a gentleman uh, named Moitinho, and his colleagues included somebody called Vieira, somebody called Antonio, and the layout of the office was similar. Mm. So, uh, so it was really modeled after reality. Oh, interesting, okay. Yeah. 
Richard, it strikes me that a, a lot of the fragments in the Book of Disquiet involve Swarish trying to analyse or maybe to explain his own personality, which in some ways is a very contradictory personality. You know, in some ways he, he describes himself as a very ordinary person. You know, he says, I have no ambitious, ambition to be anything other than an assistant bookkeeper. In fact, he sort of prays he'll never be promoted to head bookkeeper. He sort of wants to keep that position. But in other cases, he's sort of self-aggrandizing. He sort of puts himself on a, a level with other conscious makers like uh, William Shakespeare, like Dante, like yes. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, how, would you, how do you describe the, the personality of this author? Well, I think he reflects Pessoa in those contradictions. On the one hand, very reserved, as, as Fernando Pessoa was, and not expecting much in this world or aiming for much, but uh, dreaming of immortality. But Bernardo Suarez is kind of a lesser version, I would say, of Pessoa. That is, he's less complex than Fernando Pessoa, but basically just lived for his writing. So mm -hmm. he, he, he wrote whenever he could in his spare time in his rented room at night and has some sense of humor, but less so. Uh -huh. And Fernando Pessoa is kind of a, a bit more dire in a, in a certain way mm -hmm. than, than Pessoa. Yes, there's a, um, there's a particularly mournful moment when uh, Suarez says, uh, when I leaned out of my high window looking down at the street I couldn't see I suddenly felt like one of those damp rags used for house cleaning that are taken to the window to dry but are forgotten, bulled up on the sill where they slowly leave a stain. And it's just sort of so just well, yeah, brutally but, maudlin. Yes, but I, yeah, and I think sometimes that I can imagine Pessoa writing a passage like that and then giggling. Right. I mean, right. I have to say, I think Pessoa, one thing I know for sure, Pessoa never took himself too seriously. And uh, so he, he might write something like that. And how shall I say? There's a, some truth there, but it, that, it's a feeling at a certain moment. And, but there's a lot of self-irony always in Pessoa and in Bernardo Suarez. Yes, it's the sunset. Slowly and distractedly, I reach the end of the Rua de Alfandega and see, beyond the Torero do Paso, a clear view of the sunless western sky. It's a blue sky tinged green and tending towards light grey, and on the left, over the hills of the opposite bank, there's a cowering mass of brownish to lifeless pink fog, a sky with every fading colour. Light blue, blue-green, pale grey between green and blue, fuzzy hues of distant clouds that aren't clouds, yellowishly darkened by an expiring red. So, Richard, we've come right down from the high spot where we began this section of our conversation, right down to the shores of the river Tagus, and, and the, the busy streets that we've been walking down have suddenly opened up into this huge, expansive square. It's really dramatic. The sky is suddenly enormous above us. And we're sitting on the river beach here with the waves gently lapping near us and this incredible vista around us. Yes. Now, the Tagus, you know, is his home river. It was clearly important to him. He used it as one of his 
Petronyms, in fact. He used it as the name under which he wrote riddles for um, Yes, when he was in Durban as a, uh-huh. as a boy, uh, participating in a riddle contest in the newspaper. Which I think he won. He won. <laughs> yes. uh, and yeah, but so it did, he, was, he was always drawn to water. Uh, and also in, in South Africa, when he was a boy, Durban was the, actually not the capital of Natal, the colony, English colony, but it was the largest city. It was a right. port city. Had a big port, yeah. And then in his imagination, he, he writes a lot about, oh, his longest poem is the Maritime Ode of Alvaro the Campos, 900 verses. You know? right. And uh, all a kind of an ode to the ocean, really. Well, and there's an irony there, isn't there? Because you know, being so interested in the ocean and, and actually having travelled so far as a young man to then hardly ever leave this city as an adult. How does Pessoa, perhaps through Suarez, justify that, that insularity, that lack of a need to travel? Well, Bernardo Suarez writes that you only need to travel if you have a poor imagination. <laughs> right. So he says, for instance, that he can take a streetcar ride to Benfica, which is a neighborhood in, in north of Lisbon, and, and then for him, that's like what would be a voyage to China for another person, because right. he has a, a, a sensibility that, that can really see and appreciate everything uh, intensely. And if you have that, then what's the use of traveling? There's a, there's a moment in the Book of Disquiet when he says, why travel in Madrid, Berlin, Persia, China, and at the North or South Pole, where would I be but in myself? Travel is the traveler. What we see isn't what we see, but what we are. Yes, yeah, so those, those, are, those are fantastic yeah. lines. The travel is the traveler. Travel is the traveler. Um, that makes, yeah. And it, you know, it really makes you realize that good travel writers are not writing about what they're seeing. They're writing about their experience of seeing it. Exactly. And that's what's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking about travel and, and the experience of the world, there are a number of places in the Book of Disquiet where, where Pessoa or Suarez talk about the world as a kind of text, almost as if, as if the world is a book that we are reading by living it. You know, he says at one point, the office becomes a page with people for its words, the street is a book. And elsewhere he says, this makes me fantasize whether everything in the sum total of the world might not be an interconnected series of dreams and novels, like little boxes inside larger boxes, uh, everything being a story made up of stories. And he speaks of his own life as a novel. Right, right. And... I wonder, you know, if he's sort of turning himself into a, into a book in some ways in this book of Disquiet. I wonder if, if you'd agree with me that what he's proposing is that the solution to the, the sort of existential problem of life and being alive is reading, that we have to learn to read well, not just the books which are printed as books, but read, read our lives well, read the world well, and that really the ultimate ambition is to become a good reader. I think that's right, and, and being a good reader means being very sensitive, being very aware, seeing things without uh, preconceptions, seeing things as if for the very first time, and, and always uh, having that keenness of, of, uh, of hearing, of, of smelling, of tasting, of seeing, all the senses. So he, Pessoa had a one of his literary movements that he invented yeah. uh, back around the time of Orfeo when he launched modernism. He had something called intersectionism and then another movement, the most enduring one, was sensationism. 
And so that's what, what also Bernard de Soit is, is about, is just uh, being very alive to sensations. So we're just crossing into the corner of the square where underneath the arcade there's the oldest surviving cafe in Lisbon. It's the Café Martinho da Arcada, which was founded in 1782. And this was one of Fernando Pessoa's favourite cafes in the city. Pessoa frequented a lot of cafes, but uh, where we met initially this morning at the Café Brasileira in Chiado, that was one of his favourites early on. But then, from about 1920 until the end of his life, that, that is that same period when he was living at what is now the Casa Fernando Pessoa, this was the cafe where he almost always came every afternoon. He and then other friends, whoever would happen to show up. So they would be at one table and, or maybe a couple of tables if there were a lot of them that day, talking about politics, talking about ideas, talking about literature. And, and so on. So that was really the beginning and practically the end of Pessoa's social life was that daily meeting in the cafe. Wow. Yeah. And here in particular, yes. So Richard, why would you say The Book of Disquiet is such an important book? Why is it significant? One thing interesting about The Book of Disquiet is that even though it was written, of course, during Pessoa's lifetime, up until he died in 1935. It really is a book of the second half of the 20th century. Right. And, and, and I think that it's a book that people in his own time would not have been able to appreciate. Uh, it's fragmentary nature and the sense that one has that you cannot have definite truths with a capital T, that everything is uh, always in flux, everything is somewhat relative. All of these are notions that I think only after the Second World War, the Holocaust, and, and all of that disabused us of the idea of having these great truths. And, and, but Basoa already knew and already felt that it was impossible to have these perfect holes. Uh, so it, it's a book that really uh, speaks to us and for us now. And one of the things uh, that the book does so well is express our own feelings of disquiet, our own feelings of restlessness. And we read passages in the book of disquiet often and think, well, ah, that, yes, that's exactly what, what I think. That's exactly what I feel. Although I would never have been able to say it in, so eloquently. There's a moment in the book, isn't there, where he says something like, no great work can be written for the contemporaries of the author. It's always written for uh, a future time. And it feels like maybe the Book of Disquiet needed to wait that time before it, it could find the right moment to emerge into the world. That's exactly right. And as a final question, Richard, what, what do you see as Pessoa's legacy today and how do you see it continue into the future? Of course, any great writer's legacy is, is, is their work that they leave. And so the Book of Disquiet just has marvelous passages of, of prose. And I think when we read them, often the, it's so compelling what we read and so beautiful that it gives us these moments of e epiphany. You know? Although a lot of it sounds maybe despairing, 
and some of the reflections, yet it's also beautifully rendered and so honest that we, we end up feeling uplifted in, in, in an interesting way. Um, there was a person I met, not a friend, we just crossed paths. Mm. This was in Brazil many, many years ago. It was actually around 1982, 81, 82, when the Book of Disquiet was first being published. Right. I knew little about Pessoa at the time and uh, had not read, of course, the Book of Disquiet. Anyway, this person, we crossed paths. I was leaving Brazil. She had just arrived. And then many years later, I got a letter from her. And she had remembered my name and seen the Book of Disquiet in my translation in a bookshop in San Francisco. She purchased it. And she wrote me to say that she had been emotionally blocked for many years and had gone to therapy. She was disconnected from her feelings. She, some kind of trauma which she did not explain in her childhood that causes this tremendous blockage. And she said that by uh, reading the Book of Disquiet and seeing many of the same feelings she felt expressed through Bernardo Suarez, that it unblocked her. And it was just this magical uh, reconnection with her feelings. And um, as a translator, that was certainly one of, for me, one of the most moving yes. uh, occurrences. But I think also Pessoa's legacy has to do with freedom. And so Pessoa is really about being free, about not being stuck into what you might think you are, or how you were born, or uh, what you've been telling yourself all these years, is to get free of all that and to just feel things uh, directly, always in a, in a new way, to be completely flexible mentally and emotionally, and also to be free of expectations of society, and to just have this courage to be really whoever you are. And that's this freedom that, um, that, that Pessoa realizes in himself and is this wonderful example for us. Richard, what, a, what an inspiring way to finish our conversation today. Thank you. It's been such a privilege walking through Lisbon with you, meeting all the various heteronyms of Fernando Pessoa through you. And thank you so much for taking the time to well, join you, us Hedman. today. Well, thank you, Henry. I've really enjoyed it. It's been, been a, a wonderful day. Oh, well, thank you very much. Many thanks to Richard Zenith, to Clara Richo and the Casa Fernando Pessoa, to Naxos Audiobooks for the clips of Adam Sims reading from The Book of Disquiet, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. The lines from the fragment that Richard chose to conclude his version of the Book of Disquiet. Reading them, I can imagine the figure of Pessoa himself, his hat on his head, walking away and becoming lost among the downtown streets of Lisbon. Tomorrow I too will vanish from the Rua de Prata, the Rua dos Douradores, the Rua dos Fanqueros. Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow I too, I will, too be will be the one who no longer walks these streets, whom others will vaguely evoke with a, what's become of him? And everything I've done, everything I've felt, and everything I've lived will amount merely to one less passerby 
on the everyday streets of some city or other. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.